And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. I was asked the other day why I have the most haunted city in the country in my intro to every show. For 20 years, I did ghost tours in El Paso. And I've written numerous books about uh, the ghosts and the hauntings of this city. The um, And I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed meeting people. And then a few folks decided that um, they would take my books, memorize the stories, and do their own tours. And then they started just coming up with all kinds of crap. To the point, I said, to hell with it. I did them for 20 years, and if folks want to go listen to the idiots, fine with me. Well, today's the 73rd day of the year. It's March 14th, Pi Day. 292 days remain till the year's over with. The uh, It's Science Education Day. National Organize Your Home Office Day. International Day of Mathematics. Now, that just doesn't add up to me. National Potato Chip Day. My diet didn't allow them, but I'd be eating some right now. International Ask a Question Day. And as I said, National Pie Day. White Day, which has the liberals just bouncing off the walls. Legal Assistance Day. Crowdfunding Day. National Learn About Butterflies Day. God, we got some of the dumbest holidays. Um, Mother Day, uh, I'm sorry, Mother Day, Dribble to Work Day, March Madness, Universal Women's Week, Sweep o- Sleep Awareness Week, and Pulmonary Rehabilitation Week. Well, now that we got all that covered, the, um, you know, in 1074 on this date, we had the Battle of Magyarod, Dukes of Gesa and Adislas defeat their cousin Solomon, king of Hungary, forcing him to flee to Hungary's western borderland. And in 1590, we had the Battle of Ivory. Henry of Navarre and the Huguenots defeat the forces of the Catholic League under Charles, Duke of Mayenne, during the French War of Religion. Now that's something just really an outstanding basis for a war. You don't worship the way I do, so you're wrong. Uh, 1647, Thirty Years' War, Bavaria, Cologne, France, and Sweden signed the Truce of Ulm on this date. Uh, uh, 1663, according to his own account, Otto von Gerich completes his book, Experimenta Nova, Magdeburgia de Vacuo Spatio, detailing his experiments on vacuum and his discovery of electrostatic repulsion. 1757, uh, Sir Admiral Sir John Bang is executed by firing squad on the war age of as monarch for breaching the Articles of War. Now let's take a good officer and just shoot him because he didn't dot his I's and cross his T's. And I've known some officers who should have been shot but they could do no wrong because they knew the right people. 
1780, American Revolutionary War, Spanish forces capture Fort Charlotte, Mobile, Alabama. Last British frontier post capable of threatening New Orleans. 1794, Eli Whitney is granted a patent for the cotton gin. Um, 1900, the gold standard act is ratified, placing the U.S. currency on the gold standard. But you see, if you have to have a dollar's worth of gold for every dollar, that limits the amount of money that can be in circulation, and the liberals just couldn't have that. They want to spend, 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 spend. So, eventually, we, we created fiat money. It's money because we say it is. 1901, Utah Governor Herbert Manning Wells vetoes a bill that would have eased restriction on polygamy. The, uh, why anybody would want more than one wife is beyond me. Um, 1903, Pelican Island National Wildlife Refuge, the first national wildlife refuge in the U.S., was established by President Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, 1920, in the second of the 1920 Celsius Pueblo sites, about 80% of the population in Zone 2 votes to remain part of the Weimar Republic. 1926, the El Varilla train accident in Costa Rica kills 248 and wounds another 93 when a train falls off a bridge over the Rio Varilla between Heredia and Tibas. 1931, Alam Ara, India's first talking film, is released. 1939, the, um, now before I go any further, let me remind you this is pie day. Rush out and get your pie today. I prefer Village Inn, personally. All right, <clears throat> we have been talking about unfinished business. In other words... Unsolved murders. We're going to talk about an interesting one today. Happened April 17, 1935. Bert Hobson and his son Ron were fishing from a 12 foot launch off uh, Maruba Point in Coogee, Sydney, Australia. Dissatisfied with their catch, they put out set lines baited with uh, horse mackerel before going back home for the evening. Next morning, they came back to see if their, the lines had left had caught anything profitable. And they were dis- surprised to discover a tiger shark. 14 feet, 6 inches long. It had been lured to the set line to feast on a smaller shark that had become tangled in it. Thompson's managed to capture the tiger shark and sold it to the Coogee Aquarium. Which had to be run by uh, Bert's brother. Charlie. You know, there was a depression going on worldwide in the 30s. And it hit Sydney hard, and Charlie Hobson hoped this uh, new addition would attract visitors willing to pay a little bit extra to see this impressive shark fed twice a day. Afternoon of April 25th, 1935, Anzac Day, that's a holiday honoring World War I veterans. Eight days after the shark had been caught, 
A grizzly discovery was found, or it came to the surface of the shark's tank. Fortunately, only a few people were there when the aquarium's prized attraction uh, started to thrash about, as if it was trying to jump out of the, the pool. Moments later, a human arm uh, clearly uh, expelled or thrown up or by the shark uh, was seen bobbing in the water. And while Bert Hobson used a stick to keep this uh, gruesome find close to the side of the tank in uh, case the shark wanted to swallow it again, the police were immediately informed and rushed to the scene. To their surprise, that arm appeared to be in a fair state of preservation. Now, generally, the gastric juices of a shark would digest human flesh within just a few days. But the stress and shark, a shock of being captured and put on display may have slowed this particular shark's digestive processes. A piece of rope was tied around the wrist. On the inside forearm was a tattoo of two sparring boxers. It's thought the arm had actually been swallowed by a smaller shark that the tiger shark had eaten. Now, gradually, theories as to whose arm it was started to build up. Some wondered whether the arm had been discarded by a doctor or a medical student. Others suggested uh, that the arm could have belonged to a man who died by suicide by jumping into the water with his arms tied. Now, due to decomposition, getting fingerprints off this uh, arm, especially in 1935, was not an easy task. Medical examiners had to carefully remove skin from the fingers and slip it over their own glove digits to lift a print. Now, the police got their first lead when a man named Edwin Smith recognized the description of the tattoo. His brother James had been missing since April 7th. That was over three weeks prior after telling his wife he was going to go on a fishing trip with a companion. Now, James was a 45-year-old English-born criminal, police informant, next boxer who lived in the Sydney suburb of Gladesville. Fingerprinting confirmed the arm did indeed belong to him. Now, it was initially assumed that the discovery was simply evidence of a Another tragic uh, shark attack, of which there had been three in the previous months. But further examination revealed a far more disturbing scenario. It's clear that the arm hadn't been bitten off by the shark. After all, it had been severed with a knife. So the focus of this particular investigation turned from accident to murder. Now, thanks to Edwin Smith's information, the police at least knew who the arm belonged to. But they were now faced with probably the most bizarre case they'd ever come across. In a uh, Wagga Wagga Express article, that was a local paper dated June 15, 1935, detectives freely admitted they were facing a problem seemingly devised by one of the cleverest killers in the history of Sydney's crime. Uh, James Smith had numerous connections with the criminal underworld. While looking into his seedy acquaintances, investigators came across the name of Reginald Holmes. Now, to many who knew him, Holmes appeared to be a respectable, wealthy businessman and family man who ran a successful boat-building business on the shores of Lavender Bay. But there was 
actually another hidden side to Holmes' life. Behind the facade of normalty, he was involved in various illegal activities, controlled lucrative smuggling and insurance fraud operations from his company, which was um, strategically situated on the shorefront. Further inquiries revealed that Holmes had uh, once hired Smith to collect cocaine, opium, and uh, <clears throat> the peanut gallery tuned up. Anyway, Holmes had hired Smith to collect cocaine, opium, and other contraband dropped overboard by ships coming in from the east. And investigators discovered that the year before his disappearance, Smith had been using an overinsured yacht owned by Holmes when a mysterious fire started and the yacht sank. They had intended to cash in the, the insurance money, but the company concerned became suspicious and refused to pay. Investigators speculated Smith was shot dead on the shore and his body then dumped in the ocean. They hoped that uh, finding the spent cartridge from the bullets that killed him, uh, as well as identifying the gun that fired it, might lead him to the killer. So the beaches from Cronulla to Coogee were painstakingly searched. Now the shark in the aquarium was killed, gutted, and examined, and but both these attempts to find any clues as to how Smith met his end were in vain. Initially, Holmes strongly denied any involvement in the bizarre case, but shortly after police questioned him, they got reports of a raving man careening around the harbor in a speedboat with blood streaming down his face. After lengthy police pursuit, the, the dazed man was captured, identified as Reginald Holmes himself. had a wound to his head, and he claimed that somebody had shot at him. However, the police were a little skeptical of this story, and Concluded Holmes has inflicted the gunshot wound on himself. Either Holmes was trying to cast himself as the victim in the case, or the graze on his head was uh, a failed suicide attempt. Now, you got to be a pretty sorry shot if you can't even shoot yourself in the head. Now, interrogation of Holmes led investigators to a convicted forger named uh, Patrick Brady, whom Smith had been drinking and playing cards at the Hotel Cecil in Cornula. Police found out that uh, Brady employed several aliases, including Mr. Williams, Mr. Anderson, and Mr. Evans, and rented a cottage called uh, Cora Joy on the uh, Tulumbi Street in Cornula. When the cottage was searched, a can of kerosene mixed with blood was found in the pantry. Owner of the college noticed that since Brady rented it, two rugs, two large mats, a mattress, a metal trunk, and a rope all appeared to be missing. And even more particular, the contents of the missing metal trunk had been placed inside a new larger one that was found in its place. Now, the owner also noted the cottage had been scrupulously cleaned. Impressed by this accumulation of clues, the police questioned Patrick Brady. And a few days later, they charged him with the murder of James Smith. Now, Reginald Holmes was scheduled to appear at the coroner's inquiry as well as the uh, much-anticipated trial of Brady, but uh, Holmes wouldn't live long enough to give his testimony. Early hours of the very morning of the coroner's inquest, Holmes was found shot dead in his car on Hickson Road, Dawes Point, near Sydney Harbor Bridge. This was a very desolate, run-down area, somewhat, uh, somewhere where the law-abiding citizens uh, rarely went if they could help it. 
Reputed to be a favorite meeting point for local smugglers and a place where money and contraband speedily changed hands. Passenger door of Holmes's Nash sedan was ajar, and the position of his wounds indicated he'd been shot three times by somebody sitting in the passenger seat. And there were no signs of a struggle, implying that Holmes had been murdered by somebody he knew well enough to allow to get in his car. Man fishing off Dolls Point claimed to have heard three shots at about the nine or ten o'clock uh, the evening before Holmes was found. Following Holmes's murder, his wife came forward to tell what she knew, and in lieu of her murdered husband, became the key witness in the trial. She said on April eighth, Patrick Brady had visited their home. His arms were cut and bloody. He carried a knapsack she recognized as belonging to Smith. Taxi driver later corroborate her story, telling investigators on that same date he had driven Brady from Cronulla to Holmes' home in uh, North Sydney. After Brady left, Holmes told his wife Brady had murdered Smith, dismembered him, put him in a tin trunk, put it in a boat, and tipped it overboard. Now, a majority of the detectives in the city homicide squad believed that Brady somehow f- forgot about Smith's telltale tattoo arm when picking, packing the trunk with the rest of his dismembered remains. Realizing his mistake, he later disposed of it, where it was immediately swallowed by a shark. Others theorized that Brady had retained Smith's arm as evidence in order to convince Holmes that the gruesome deed had to be done and before disposing of it in the sea. Supreme Court ruled that the arm didn't constitute a body, which was required for a murder conviction, so there was no way of knowing if James Smith was deceased or not. He could have just lost his arm. Judge also refused to accept Mrs. Holmes' testimony regarding it only as hearsay. She was re- uh, testifying to what someone else told her, so that's the very definition of hearsay. The generally accepted theory is that when the insurance company refused to pay out after the suspicious sinking of Holmes' yacht, Smith and Holmes fell out, and Smith threatened to expose Holmes as a criminal. James Smith's wife testified she found an entry in her husband's uh, Black, uh, black pocketbook that Reginald Holmes uh, had owed him uh, 60 pounds. Or maybe it was uh, 65. In today's money, that'd be a little over uh, 5,000. Maybe as much as uh, 5,500. She said she couldn't be sure how the debt was incurred, but it was possible this was the amount of money that uh, Holmes owed Smith for the boat in, from the boat insurance scheme that went awry. In a bid to save his reputation, Holmes hired Brady to put Smith away for good, and Brady shot Smith dead in his rented cottage. Uh, when investigators later questioned Holmes, Brady, Brady believed that Holmes wouldn't stand up to the pressure, so he silenced him as well. An intriguing alternative theory about Holmes' death was put forth by Alex Castle in his 1995 book, the shark arm murders. Castle speculated that the outwardly respectable Holmes could have taken out a contract on his own life in order to spare his family the public shame that would that would have suffered if he were to be convicted of the the boat insurance fraud. Castle's also suggested uh, another possible suspect for the murders of Smith and Holmes. Smith had been a police informant and pointed the finger at a Sydney gangster named Eddie Wayman in a bank robbery. Wayman was also mixed up with the local drug trade, and it's possible Wayman killed Smith and Holmes out of revenge and to remove 
rivals in the drug trade. The person who threw James Smith's James Smith's disem, uh, disem, uh, blah, 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 one more time dismembered arm in the shark to the sharks and silenced Reginald Holmes has never been brought to justice. 1954, somebody tried to kill James Smith's son, Raymond, with a car bomb. Fortunately, there was nobody in the car when the bomb went off. You just can't get good help anymore. In the past, murder convictions without a body were rare, but modern developments in forensic science have made it much more likely that a conviction can be obtained today. One famous example is the conviction of Richard Crafts, who murdered his wife in Connecticut in 1986 and disposed of her body using a wood chipper. DNA technology and criminal investigation would probably have resulted in Brady being found guilty with or without the rest of Smith's body. The notoriety of the shark arm case uh, blinded uh, Patrick Brady's life. He died in 1965 at the age of 71. So the question becomes, who killed James Smith? It was a, it was actually a million to one chance that the murder was ever brought to light, triggering a chain of events stronger than the stranger than uh, plots and most uh, fiction murder mysteries. Now, the interesting thing. is, had it not been for a series of coincidences, the small shark getting tangled in the line, the tiger shark coming in to eat it, uh, it being caught, given to the aquarium, and it having indigestion and burping up a severed arm, um, could very easily have not happened at all. Well, Let's talk about the the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run. This serial killer led one of U.S.'s premier detectives in a gruesome dance and terrified the citizens of Cleveland for over four years. According to the Cleveland News of 1936, he kills to satisfy bestial sadistic lust for blood. And I've known a lot of people like that. Now, if you come from Cleveland, Ohio, there's a good chance you've heard um, a couple of lines from a 1930s um, song. Floating down the river, chunk by chunk by chunk, arms and legs and torsos, hunk by hunk by hunk. These lyrics refer to the Cleveland torso murder. This shadowy individual was exceptionally brutal. Decapitating, dismembering, and sexually mutilating his victims, many of whom are still alive when he inflicted these gruesome um, injuries on them. The butcher within uh, litter of Kingsbury Run, a shanty town in a creek bed running from East 90th Street and Kinsman Road to the Cuyahoga River, with their discarded uh, limbs ready to be found by unsuspecting passersby. Story unfolded on the shores of Euclid Beach in Bretonnau, Ohio, September 5th, 1934. 
Frank uh, Legasso was gathering wood when he made an interesting discovery that he initially mistook for a log. Bobbing along with the flow of the, the water was the decomposed torso of a woman. Her head, arms, and legs below the knee were missing. body had been treated with some kind of chemical preservative in an attempt to delay decomposition. Identity of the first victim has never been discovered. She's always been dubbed the Lady of the Lake. Now, although never officially confirmed, the Lady of the Lake is generally accepted as the first victim of the Cleveland Torso murderer. It wasn't until the next year the Cleveland police realized that this macabre found, find was no isolated incident. There was a serial killer at work. Now, the date was September 23, 1935, and Cleveland was swarming with worshippers gathering for the National Eucharistic Congress. While playing softball in a ravine in Kingsbury Run, just at the foot of Jackass Hill, two boys stumbled on the bodies of two men who had been decapitated and castrated. One was identified via fingerprints as Edward Andrasi, 28, a petty criminal from Cleveland's west side had rope burns around his wrist, presumably from being bound by his killer. The other man, who was stocky and middle-aged, was never identified, but appeared to have been killed several weeks before on Trussie. Disturbingly, the professional-looking decapitations weren't uh, carried out post-mortem, but were actually the cause of the death for both men. The famed Prohibition agent Elliot Ness had been transferred from Chicago to Cleveland in 1934 to become the city's uh, safety director. He successfully led an operation against Al Capone and other Chicago mobsters, and his uh, job now is to clean up Cleveland's notorious uh, organized crime network. But apparently a very different kind of criminal was at large, and Ness was determined to catch him. Now, one thing to keep in mind, it wasn't Elliot Ness himself that brought down Capone. It was an accountant. Capone was tried and convicted of tax evasion, not of committing any violent crime, though everyone knew he did. Four months later, a barking dog drew attention to two half-bushel baskets covered with burlap bags discarded behind... uh, Heart Manufacturing, just off East 20th Street. Stuffs inside the baskets with a lower half of a female torso, two thighs, a right arm, and a hand. The rest of the woman's remains, apart from her head, were discovered the next week in a vacant lot a couple of blocks away on Orange Avenue. The cause of the death was again decapitation. Head had been severed between the third and fourth cervical vertebrae with one swift stroke Fingerprints enabled investigators to identify the body as that of Florence Bray Lilo, 42-year-old barmaid and prostitute from the Kingsbury Run area. She'd be the last of the butcher's 13 victims the investigators would successfully identify. Victim number five was discovered in June of 1936. This time, two boys were skipping school when they happened on a pair of trousers rolled into a ball lying near train tracks and... Kingsbury Run. Hoping to find money in the pockets, they prodded the rolled-up pants with a fishing rod. One of the boys later commented, We took a fishing pole and poked the bundle, and out pops a head.
Investigators found a nude male body about 300 yards away in the front of the Nickel Plate Road police station. Much like his male predecessors, this victim had been emasculated and decapitated. Investigators anticipated this victim would be easy to identify owing to the fact he had a number of tattoos, including a dove on his arm with the names Helen and Paul inscribed uh, above it. However, despite these distinctive markings and a death mask being placed on display at the uh, subsequent Great Lakes Exposition, his identity was never discovered. Pattern is beginning to emerge, decapitation, dismemberment, and sexual mutilation, all skillfully carried out. Investigators sought this killer. The bodies continued to pile up. Mid-July, another victim was found in a valley similar to Kingsbury Run on the west side of the city, and he had also been decapitated and castrated. Head was found about 10 feet away from the, the body, along with a bundle of bloody clothing. The substantial amount of blood on the ground indicated that, unlike the previous victims, this man had been killed where he was found. September, the remains of the seventh victim was discovered in a stagnant creek in Kingsbury Run. Near his body was a bloodstained shirt wrapped in a newspaper. The body was dragged by diver. The creek was dragged by divers until the lower halves of his legs were found. He had also been emasculated. His head was never recovered. It's probably in, sitting in somebody's bureau. Year 1937 brought a spade of new bodies. February 23rd, the upper part of a young woman's torso was found on uh, Lake Erie's uh, eastern shore. Unlike those before, she'd been decapitated after death. The lower half of her torso washed ashore three months later. Bones and a skull, all that remained of, murder, of uh, victim number nine, who was uh, found June 6th. They were dug up beneath the... Uh, the Rain Carnegie Bridge, less than a mile from Kingsbury Run. Analysis of the bones revealed those of an African-American woman who'd been dead about a year. As the news spread throughout the city, a man claimed the remains were those of his mother, Rose Wallace, who disappeared ten months earlier. Unfortunately for the, the gentleman, his, uh, this could never be officially confirmed. Investigators did not have to wait long for another body to pop up. July 6th, the lower half of a man's torso was found floating in the Cuyahoga River. Burlap sack contained his upper torso was retrieved later. He'd been sliced open, gutted, and had his heart ripped out. And then there was a, a lull until April of the next year when a young laborer saw something floating near a sewer outlet flowing into the Cuyahoga River. At first glance, he thought it was a dead fish. But when you inspected it closer, you realized it was the lower half of a woman's leg. Coming weeks, a lung, a knot of intestines, and a thigh could be found in the river along with two burlap sacks, one of which contained two halves of a torso. The second sack, which may have contained a head, sank without a trace and they couldn't recover it. Despite Elliot Ness and the Cleveland's police best effort, they came no closer to catching the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run. They followed a number of leads, but every tip and search proved to be fruitless. The final two victims were found in the landfill uh, on East 9th and Lakeside on August 16, 1938. Female torso was wrapped in a man's blazer and wrapped again in an old quilt. A nearby box contained the legs and arms and head. Uh, it was wrapped in uh, brown butcher's paper. An investigator trudged among the garbage. 
and uh, came across remains of a male body in a more advanced state of uh, decomposition than the, the woman that was found nearby. His head was found in a can. Manfield's in full view of it, and that's his office window. Almost as if the killer was taunting Ness. Two days later, Ness raided the shanty town of Kingsbury Run, demanding it be burned to the ground. Many residents left homeless were rounded up and arrested as Ness presumed the killer lived a transient lifestyle like that of his victims. Of course, he had no evidence to back up his theory. According to him, the arrest was for the people's own protection and also to collect fingerprints, making potential future victims easier to identify. At a time when unemployment and homelessness was widespread, Ness was highly criticized by, for these extreme tactics. Nevertheless, following the destruction of Kingsbury Run, the killings actually stopped. Cleveland torso and murderous skill with a knife led to speculation he must have extensive knowledge of human anatomy. The coroner, Dr. Samuel Gerber, pointed out the killer would be a, could be a doctor, a medical student, a male nurse, an orderly, a butcher, a hunter, or a veterinary surgeon. Article in the Cleveland News in 1936 described the uh, killer as somebody who kills for the thrill of killing. Kills to satisfy a bestial sadistic lust for blood. He kills to prove himself strong. Kills to feed his sex-perverted brain. The sight of a beheaded human seems to um, excite him. He must kill for decapitation is his uh, drug to be taken in uh, closer space doses. Investigators trawled the city in search of the killer's workshop. They sent out advertisements in 44 languages encouraging people to report any discovery of large quantities of blood. Despite the large number of people interviewed in connection with the, this case, the investigators came up with just one main suspect. In August of 1939, the police arrested Frank Dolezal, a 52-year-old Slavic immigrant uh, bricklayer who frequented the same downtown bar as the victims, Polilo and Andrasi. A search of his apartment turned up stains that the investigators claimed were human blood, findings that everyone assumed clinched the case. Dolezal was uh, questioned unrelentingly for two days, at the end of which he supposedly confessed to the murders. However, in actuality, other than circumstantial evidence, there was little to the uh, tide, Dolezal, to the slaves, and didn't take long for the case against him to start unraveling. There are also several discrepancies in Dolezal's so-called confession. He offered to uh, direct investigators to the missing body parts, but led them on a fruitless search. In addition, the supposedly incriminating bloodstains found in his bathroom turned out to be from an animal. Dolezal then recanted his confession, claimed the police had beaten it out of him. Before being brought to trial, the unfortunate Dolezal was found hanging dead in his cell. The ensuing autopsy revealed bruises, six broken ribs, all of which were inflicted while in the custody of Sheriff Martin O'Donnell. Today, it's generally believed that Frank Dolezal was innocent of the Cleveland Torso murders. 1938, Elliot Ness had another suspect who was never publicly identified. Well, during Ness's interrogation, the suspect was locked in a hotel room for two weeks, which, of course, was a clear violation of civil liberties. 
In his book, In the Wake of the Butcher, James Vidal named this uh, secret suspect as Dr. Francis Sweeney, a Cleveland physician and veteran of World War I. During his time in the Army, Sweeney had served as part of a medical unit that conducted work, including amputations on the battlefield. Kind of similar to, I guess, a mass unit. In 1934, a vagrant named Emil Fronick told police he had escaped from a doctor who he believed to be the Cleveland killer. He recounted uh, that a man who looked like a doctor offered him a meal in his home. He agreed and followed the Mando house on Kingsbury Run. Once inside, the doctor brought out the finest handout I was ever offered. However, after scoffing the meal, Frank became nause- uh, Frank became nauseated and fearful. When a man went to the kitchen and allegedly get a whiskey, Frank staggered outside and hid. He related his story to another vagrant who also said that uh, he almost uh, got cut up in that house too. Unfortunately... Fronick was later able to identify the house on Kingsbury Run, well, where these events supposedly took place. Dr. Francis Sweeney had lived a turbulent life. He was in and out of the probate court system, was also uh, clearly an alcoholic. said that when Sweeney was apprehended by Ness, it took him two days to sober up enough to be able to cooperate. 1934, Sweeney's wife divorced him on the grounds he'd become increasingly abusive and violent toward both her and the children. Said he would disappear for days and hallucinate while under the influence of alcohol, causing her to feel for her safety and her husband's sanity. Nine days after the final victim was discovered, Sweeney committed himself to the soldiers and sailors' home in Sandusky, Ohio. He was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia. In the mid-1950s, Elliot Ness received several taunting postcards, supposedly from Sweeney. 2003 attempt to retrieve DNA from the postage stamps on the letters that were in the possession of the Western Reserve Historical Society was abandoned when it was decided it would cause irreparable damage to the items in question. In 1939, Cleveland police got a letter that was reportedly from the Cleveland Torso murderer. It said, Chief of Police, Matowitz, you can ask easy now. I've come to sunny California for the winter. I felt bad operating on those people, but science must advance. I'll astound the medical profession, a man with only a D.C. What it lies mean in comparison to hundreds of sick and disease-twisted bodies? Just laboratory guinea pigs found on any public street. No one missed them when I failed. My last case was successful. I now know the feeling of Pasteur, Thoreau, and other pioneers. Right now, I have a volunteer who absolutely proved my theory. They call me mad and a butcher, but the truth will out. Um, I've failed but once here. Body's never been found and never will be, but the head, minus the features, is buried on the Century Boulevard between Western and Crenshaw. I feel it's my duty to dispose of the bodies as I do. It's God's will not to let them suffer. It was signed with an X. Well, the Cleveland Torso murderers caused widespread panic among the city's rapidly growing population. And despite the frantic search for the killer, his identity still remains a mystery, as do the identities of most of his unfortunate victims. In 1950, 41-year-old Robert Robertson was found partially decapitated in Cleveland. Some theorized he was another victim of the Cleveland uh, torso murderer. 
It's also been suggested there could have been multiple killers and that a lack of DNA testing and experience in handling such a case led investigators to contribute to all the slayings to one person. Well, the Cleveland Torso murders remains the most notorious murder spree in the city's history. Today haunted Cleveland uh, ghost tours offers a macabre torso murder tour. Takes in the sights of the murders, enabling the curious to follow in the footsteps of the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run. You know, the, that's why I called this series Unfinished Business, because Ness's business was catching the bad guys. And he didn't. I mean, his reputation was very much overinflated as a result of the Al Capone conviction. Well, you know, while most Britons were suffering the perils and privations of World War II, in East Africa, a few wealthy aristocrats were living it up until murder shattered their little Garden of Eden. The murder of Jocelyn Hay, 22nd Earl of Errol, Baron of Kilmarnock and High Constable of Scotland, scandalized wartime Britain by exposing the decadent habits of a group of wealthy uh, expatriates in colonial Kenya. Speculation was also rife as to the murderer's possible motive. Was it a crime of passion prompted by Hayes' notorious womanizing, or could his death have been a political assassination provoked by his fastest connections? Hayes' shady reputation dated back to his youth. He was expelled from Eton in 1916 for undisclosed reasons. One of a small group of privileged white Britons sitting out the war in Kenya, living a life of hedonism and luxury. The group was known as the Happy Valley Set, and the White Highlands of Kenya was their playground. Happy Valley Set, notorious for its sexual promiscuity, excessive drinking, drug use, continuous partying, Shock a small community of settlers who were striving to create productive farmland from the African bush. He first arrived in Kenya in 1924 with his wife, Lady Idina Sakpo, with whom he uh, had eloped while she was still married to her first husband. And he didn't make much of a pretense of being faithful, but Idina reportedly didn't mind the numerous love affairs her husband was having behind her back. She was only happy if all her guests had swapped partners, wives, or husbands by nightfall, according to James Fox in a book he wrote called The Happy Valley Set, White Mischief, adapted into a feature film in 1987. Cooper's dental parties at their ranch house, which was called Clouds, were the talk of the area. Regular event at these uh, gaudy charades was the sheet game in which... Uh, Nude male guests lined up behind a sheet. Female guests then attempted to identify him just by their lower regions, shall we say. 1928, the couple divorced amid arguments over financial issues. Hay moved in with Edith uh, Maud Ramsey Hill, a married woman, a few years his senior. When Ramsey Hill's husband was made privy to the affair, he confronted the couple and chased after Hay with a rhino whip. Well, Molly soon divorced him, and she and Hay married in 1930. 
Well, after leaving her husband, Molly bankrolled both herself and her younger husband. They lived in Osirian, a flashy Moroccan-style home on the shores of Lake uh, Navassa. His uh, chiseled look, arrogant air, and quick wit made him irresistibly attractive to the click of bored, upper-class settlers' wives. Serial philanderer and, uh, and gambler, his specialty was seducing rich married women. Meanwhile, Molly Ramsey Hill so immersed herself in alcohol and drug-fueled happy-day lifestyle, she died of overindulgence in 1939. Well, the next year, I uh, encountered Lady Diana Delvis Broadham, a voluptuous 26-year-old with deep blue eyes and wispy blonde locks. Many women in Happy Valley set uh, envied her beauty and sex appeal. Lady Diana recently married uh, Sir Jack Dales Broughton, a uh, 11th baronet, 30 years her senior and largest landowner owner in Kenya. Recently divorced, Sir Jock had uh, decided to take his young wife to Kenya to escape mounting debts, as well as to get away from wartime Britain. And shortly before Sir Jock divorced his first wife in 1939, he'd been suspected of an insurance fraud over the theft of some paintings and jewelry. Well, the attraction between the aristocratic Hay and Lady Diana was instant. They embarked on a passionate and highly visible affair, which Sir Jock was said to be very nonchalant about. When he and Diana married, they had reportedly made a pact that they would Set each other free, should either one of them fall in love with somebody else. Sir Jock later claimed he took a philosophical view of his young, uh, beautiful young wife's affair with his friend and resolved to step back and honor his promise. Demonstrate he bore the couple no air well. On January 23, 1941, Sir Jock invited Lady Diana and Hay to a dinner party at the exclusive uh, Latiaga Club, a frequent haunt of the Happy Valley set, along with several other friends. And during this lavish event, Sir Jock, though drinking heavily, played the perfect part of a graceful loser in love. He even toasted the new couple with champagne and wished them every happiness. But within a few hours, Hay would be dead. As the dinner party reached its drunken conclusion, Hay and Lady Diana decided to continue celebrating without dancing. About 2.15 in the morning, Hay dropped Lady Diana at the house she shared with Sir Jock and climbed back into his Buick to drive the short distance to his own house. An hour later, at the uh, Karen Road Junction on the Nairobi-Nagong Road, two dairy workers discovered Hay's body. Scarred headlights were still burning. His body was in a kneeling position in the front passenger footwell. The bullet entered his head just behind the right ear. All the marks of an execution, don't you know? Powder marks on the side of his face indicated he'd been shot at close range. In the car, police found a cigarette end soaked in blood. In what remains arguably one of the most bungled police inspections in criminal history, Hay's body was removed before being carefully examined, and police trampled all over another set of tire tracks that could have had a bearing on the case. Hay's Buick was even given a thorough wash before the decision was made to dust it for fingerprints. The murder of Jocelyn Hay, 22nd Earl of Errol, marked open season on his reputation. The stories of his hedonistic lifestyle flashed across the British newspapers. Alongside news of the nightly uh, raids by German bombers, eager for distraction from the Blitz, the nation reveled in the downfall of a decadent aristocrat, sitting out to war in comfort, 
Before long, his affair with Lady Diana became common knowledge, and Sir Jock was named the prime suspect in the murder. And these Clouseau-type in, in police arrested him March 10th and charged him with murder. Sir Jock denied any involvement in the crime, citing the fact he had invited Diana and Lady Diana to his dinner party the evening before the murder as evidence he wasn't jealous or angry about the breakdown of his own marriage. During the subsequent trial, Lady Carberry, a close friend of the Broughtons, testified despite his protestations, Sir Jock appeared unhappy during the dinner party. He told her he planned to give his wife his estate or make her an allowance. He also announced he'd been extraordinarily lonely during his short marriage. Lady Carberry added that after the death of Hay, on one occasion, seeing Sir Jock had lunch during which he uh, broke down and wept. Well, so far, the evidence against Sir Jock was little more than supposition. Prosecution claimed a bloodstained cigarette in found in Hay's, uh, Hay's car constituted evidence that Sir Jock was the murderer. On a slender basis, that uh, Hay didn't smoke, but Sir Jock was known to smoke two brands of cigarettes. Searching for hard facts, the prosecution pinned its hopes on showing the single bullet that killed Hayes came from a thirty-two Colt found in Sir Jock's home. When a ballistics expert testified the bullet that killed Hay could not have come from a colt, any colt, the absence of a murder weapon destroyed the prosecution's case. After just three hours of deliberation, Sir Jock was acquitted. A contributing factor to the verdict may have been the fact that the foreman of the jury was Sir Jock's barber. Apparently, conflict of interest doesn't matter there any more than it matters here. Far from being welcomed back after his ordeal, Sir Jock was shunned by his former Happy Valley friends. Lady Diana apparently recovered quickly from the shock of Hayes' murder, immediately left Sir Jock for Gilbert Colville, a millionaire cattle rancher who lived nearby. Nursing a back problem, Sir Jock returned home to England alone and stayed in the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool. December 5, 1942, just days later, he died by suicide with a morphine overdose. To many observers, Sir Jock's suicide was tantamount to an admission of guilt. A month after Sir Jock's death, Lady Diana married the eminently respectable Gilbert Colville. They divorced uh, amicably in 1955, and later Diana later married Lord Tom Delamore. She died, age 76, September 3, 1987. In her 2003 book, Elspeth Huxley, a biography, C.S. Nichols, a uh, Authority on Colonial Kenya named Sir Jock as the murderer. By her account, Sir Jock lay in wait for Hay when he drove Lady Diana home. Got in Hay's car, shot him, and drove to the crossroads. And for a large sum of money, Sir Jock arranged for an acquaintance, Dr. Ethan Phillip, to meet him there and drive him back to the house. Well, the theory that Hay may have been killed by a jealous husband was one thing, but when Sir Jock was acquitted, speculation arose that it might have been a political motive for the murder. Could Hay have been assassinated by a British agent because he was a fascist sympathizer suspected of collaborating with the Germans? He had actually joined the British Union of Fascists for a year in 1934. Even rumors he was involved in a renegade group. The British Union of Fascists was banned in 1940. That included the Duke of Windsor and Rudolf Hess. Investigation, investigation by the Sunday Times speculated that Hay had 
abused his position as second in command of the Kenyan Armed Forces by selling secrets to Mussolini's forces in Italian East Africa. It was well known that British military plans had been leaked to the Italian Army headquarters in Addis Ababa. Could Hay have been responsible? Giving more weight to this theory, several close associates of Lady Diana alleged that uh, Hay was um, lined up to become the governor of Kenya to the, in the event of a successful Italian invasion. The commentators suggested the possibility that a scorned lover did the deed. Even some have believed that Hay was killed by Lady Diana when he refused to marry her. However, as her passionate romance was still in its first flush, and she was apparently at home in bed at the time of his death, this was thought to be highly unlikely. In 2010, a fresh suspect was brought to light when Paul Spicer began researching the American heiress countess, uh, Alice D. Janze, who had been a close friend of his mother and leading member of the Happy Valley set. In his book, The Temptress, Scandalous Life of Alice, Countess of Janze, Spicer related that Alice um, had an on-off relationship with Hay over the course of several years. Coincidentally, she had experience with a gun, having shot her lover, the English nobleman in Playboy, Raymond de Trafford, and then herself at a Paris railroad station in 1927. Both for- fortunately survived, and she was dubbed the fastest gun in the Gare du Nord. She only received a hundred-franc fine and a six-month suspended sentence for shooting Raymond de Trafford and herself. This French court viewed the crime leniently as a crime of passion. Spicer claimed that de Janze had an issue with rejection and suggested that incense by Hay's uh, budding relationship with the much younger Lady Diana, she could have arranged to meet Hay at the crossroads and shot him. She had the motives and certainly had the nerve. She wouldn't fear carrying out that, that act. She was consumed with jealousy. Soon after the murder, she visited the mortuary where Hay's body lay and kissed him on the lips, uh, exclaiming, Now you're mine forever. Well, she had dabbled in the occult, may have hoped to be reunited with her former lover in some form of afterlife. In any event, she never got over Hay's death and died by suicide in September 1941, just seven months after his murder. Spicer claims she left a note for the police in which she confessed to the murder, but... Uh, the contents of that particular note have never been revealed. The glare of publicity surrounding the murder of Hay marked the beginning of the end for Kenya's colonial expat elite, but the uh, question of who pulled the trigger that dark night and why continues to uh, fascinate all who try to, to solve that uh, thus far unsolvable case. Well, on that note, we come to the end of tonight's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk about some other equally ghastly uh, events. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.